Kia ora and welcome to Circuit's podcast series, Popular Glory, Contemporary Queerness and the Moving Image, with your host, Robbie Hancock. Today, I'll be in conversation with two artists who live in Te Whanganui Atara, Laura Duffy and Alia Winter. Both of these artists graduated from Fisi Orihua, Massey University, and between the two of them have exhibited across Aotearoa, Australia, Japan, China, Germany and the UK. Laura's video practice deals with queer desire, its pleasures and failures, and has previously been a facilitator with Artist Run Space Meanwhile. Alia often takes an archivist-type role to respond to sometimes hidden queer histories, with consideration for what their impacts are for contemporary queer existence. Laura and Alia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Wow, thank you for having us. I wanted to first ask you about a work you both collaborated on called Party Friends, uh, which was made with Inside Out, um, an organisation that works with Rainbow Youth. The work was made for an exhibition called Thinking About the Future at Te Uru Gallery, uh, and then also shown at a recent group exhibition at PlayStation called Club 290. Um, do you want to talk about the work briefly and also um, the sort of collaborative aspect of working with youth and also... Uh, what your relationship to the organisation Inside Out is. I'm going to start at the end of your question. We both are volunteers for Inside Out, which is kind of how the whole project started. Every year, Inside Out has a hui called Shift, and usually that happens IRL, but obviously because of COVID, that was happening online. And Laura and I decided to run a selfie workshop, which we had run before through Inside Out in a different context just as like a fun way for people to make some creative stuff just using their phones basically the first time we did it was like in a room full of people we went outside took lots of photos came back and then edited everything as a group yeah so we did it via zoom and discord and then we had posted some of the images from that workshop online, or I think Laura had more specifically, and that's kind of how the work was seen by the curator, Chloe, and... Chloe Giggin. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Was it then a second step of making, like, how did how did the selfies become this particular work with the two of you? Or is, or is like, how, how much was the, the kids' selfies, like, their creative sort of input a part of how it ended up looking visually so I guess the process of how we did it is kind of like there's a lot going on (laughs) we did it three times over maybe like three years the first time we ran the workshop was in 2017 and we were just in a room and then I think it was kind of sprung on us it was like Laura and Alia are going to run a photography workshop starting (laughs) now and we were like wow amazing okay here we go and then then luckily there was wi-fi in the room (laughs) and so we were like sweet we're gonna just like do selfies (laughs) and then we on the spot came up with this really cute way of editing together so we all went outside and we took these photos of ourselves and we're all being like pretty outrageous and like climbing up walls and like going into the bush and like doing all these silly little actions and then we went back into the room and we just started sending each other the photos and then editing them a little bit and then people were saying to each other like oh how did you do that how did you do that kind of thing we would talk about it in real life and then people would like download the app and then give it a go and then started editing each other's images so kind of like the actual concept of what we were doing isn't solely ours anyway 
sounded like it sort of came out quite organically. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the second time we ran it was for, for Shift Online. So Shift Hui is a three-day event that usually exists in real life. It usually happens at Aotea in Porirua, where it's kind of like queer youth from all over New Zealand come for three nights to learn about stuff and to hang out and to just have a cute bonding time. And so unfortunately that was impossible due to it being a level four lockdown. So we did it online through Discord. And then I posted it on Instagram. Chloe like sent me this email and I was like, this is wild. I did not consider this like to do with my art practice or to do with like us as artists. It's just because it comes from our like youth worky kind of stuff it seems like in a different realm and she wanted those images that we'd use from the selfie workshop in a show and then we talked about it and we thought we won't probably put those ones in because people didn't consent to being shown in public so we did it again which made it a lot more complicated (laughs) for us (laughs) yeah but it was was really important and it was really fun as well was it interesting seeing like a different generation of queers engage with technology and social media or like the implication of what a selfie is basically to how maybe our generations learnt to have those things in our lives it didn't even really feel that deep to be honest like we were all just taking photos and all of the youth are just i think it's just so second nature it's like not even like talking about generations like Gen Z or whatever, they're just like selfies, I know those, I do those, you know, and it's just like so automatic. And then the creativity part of it with the editing and like using filters and stuff, which we were really like encouraging people to do, it was just, I don't know, felt so like... I feel like there's a lot of commonalities in the group in itself, even though it is kind of like across where maybe like, how much older, like 10 years older than some of them, but Mm -hmm. it's not that much. But we do share like a lot in common not just coming from the same community but consuming the same media and finding the same memes funny there's like this kind of humor that exists like some of the stuff that the youth were sending was so crack up (laughs) like they are so funny it was yeah. yeah laura i know previously your work has dealt with a kind of push and pull of what's desirable and what's disgusting you're kind of interested in these Polars. The first time I encountered your work was at a crit at Massey. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm scared. No, and, and I, it's, I feel like a lot was there that's still in your practice now. I think it was on these, these like food images. It was more photographic based and moving yeah. image based, I think, back then. But it still had, like, it was food close-ups, kind of like disgusting, but also like yummy coloured kind of had that same sort of um the stuff then is the stuff still around now yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) people sometimes describe that as painterly oh mm. what do you think of that robbie (laughs) painter what was that weird no just robbie's reaction (laughs) well it's i don't know people say that so often to me they're like everything you do looks like a really painterly i think you have a great eye for color your works always seem to sort of have like really strong color stories and cohesive sort of color narratives. If I think of the work with with Owen Connors, which I'm about to bring up, <laughs> and your work 
at the light boxes on Courtney Place, Garden of Purity kind of had like a lot of those mossy greens and it was consistent across each panel, but exploring sort of like different imagery. And I think those projects for you seem to have a colour concern that's contained, mm. if you know what I mean. And maybe, yeah. that's what, maybe that's what people mean by painterly, but I think... Mm. As it, like for me, your work's always like very digital. <laughs> <laughs> Alia, what do you think about me? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're great. Thank you. Welcome yeah. to the Laura Duffy Show. <laughs> I was thinking about what you do with Inside Out and this community-oriented role, as well as previously working with artist-run space. Meanwhile, mm. more recently, it seems like you're leaning more into collaboration in your own practice or bringing more people in to be involved with whatever processes you have. And recently, yes, you worked with Owen Connors Mm. at a show at Blue Oyster, a video called The Warm Illumination of a Horizon. I understand it was a response to a previous exhibition Owen had had. Uh, Do you want to talk about the working dynamic and that sort of call and response that ended up happening between the two of you? Yeah, so I've got a show called Dervious at um, Blue Oyster at the moment. Um, And so for that show, I've made a film, basically. And yeah, it's it's a collaborative work with Owen. Basically, he told this amazing ghost story as a part of... It was kind of like an artist talk performance at PlayStation. And I was obsessed with it. (laughs) I kept on repeating the story. I told it to Alia... She got annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we were mid install and I was telling her a ghost story, you know, fair enough. So yeah, basically two separate things. I, yeah, I went to his artist talk. I loved it. That was that. I was obsessed with it. I kept on thinking about it. And then I went to go and visit him when he was doing the Castleberg residency in Dunedin and he's preparing for the show at Blue Oyster. And he wanted me to be in it, but we didn't really know in what capacity. And I was kind of hesitant because he'd already secured a solo show. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the one hour length pr- uh, was a prompt from Owen directly, wasn't it? Yeah, he wanted me to do something. He wanted to push me out of what I've been doing, which is usually working within kind of like three minutes. And he wanted me to do something narrative based for a long time. That was his prompt. Then we came to the idea together that it would be cool for me to translate his artist talk into a more cinematic experience. One of the things I really liked about having that at PlayStation again was that's where you heard mm. Owen's ghost story. So it kind of felt like this this ghost story had happened and then you and Owen had gone off and made work and done mysterious art things mm. and then the story got to come back to PlayStation for a screening, which felt like a really nice coming home to me. Mm. Alia. Yeah. Your work often deals with a very sort of like research-led approach to um, to queer histories. And an, uh, I think of your work Hardening, uh, which originally showed it in Joy, responded to a very specific person in a very specific situation. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that work? Yeah. That work came out of me doing my master's. And one of the interests that I have and still have with, in general is um, queer and trans history. So the person that I was researching was called Yelma von Deneville, which I'm pretty sure is how you pronounce it, but not 100%. And I actually came across the history in a really 
roundabout way where I had been doing a completely separate work on Matthew Island. Well, actually, a, a, a couple. And I'd been going there a lot and spending a lot of time there. And then came across this story on the Pride NZ Facebook page. Pride NZ is like a an online queer oral history repository. Mm. And I came across this video about Yama van Deneville, who was imprisoned there during World War One, when the island the islands had a really long tumultuous history, as many things. But at one point during World War One, it was a prisoner of war camp for people who were suspected to be German, which Yomar was, even though they kind of professed that they weren't. So I sort of came across that story, it had a really big impact on me because I'd been going there to the island this whole time, and then I started to really notice it and feel it. I don't know, the story just really resonated with me as well. It was like obvious that this was a queer person, and that was a big part of the reason why they'd been arrested and detained on this island. And I was just interested in excavating that. And when I'm doing research stuff, I guess from the outside, or sometimes it does feel like a little bit stilted, even to me. But where I'm trying to go with it is I'm trying to like fully absorb myself with something and surround myself with something. And I'm trying to like really feel it out. Like I'm researching and I'm doing a lot of paper research but then I'm also thinking about like the experiences of doing that and then also going to the island and knowing the stuff and being there and like just feeling what's there that was kind of a very instinctual part of my process as well so that's kind of what I did when I was making that work there were different parts to the whole research so I made multiple works based on that singular history and hardening was specifically to do with the Laman Health Home, which existed in Miramar. It's now an office building owned by Weta, I believe. And that originally, that building, I think was some kind of theme park and then got converted into this health home, which is where this person, Yelma, worked for a really long time. So it was sort of like a holistic healing centre. The types of places that were really popular in the Victorian era and sort of continued, I guess into the early 1900s. That was another site that I was interested in going to and feeling it out and seeing what was there. And I sort of came across it accidentally in research, looking at old pictures. And then I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I used Google Maps and there was a reference to an old tram line and the last stop on the tram line being next to where this place was. And I retraced that back to find out that it was this building and I matched it to images and stuff. But yeah, so I filmed Hardening there, and it was sort of in reference to some of the practices that happened at the Laman Health Home, one of which was air bathing. It's touted as this thing that like helps with your circulation and helps you not feel depressed. A lot of the people that would go to this place were suffering from what we might now call depression or nervous breakdowns or like things like digestion issues and stuff like that. So it was pretty like low-level kind of mental health usually related reasons so what Um, is air bathing so air bathing is this practice of basically going outside and just like standing around um usually with not a lot of clothing on so it was like you'd go out in the air stand around the idea was that being inside was bad for you in essence and being out in the cold air especially was really good for your circulation and and that it could cure all sorts of things 
And it was championed by this person called Laman, which the home, Dr. Laman, which the home was named after. And so I sort of like filmed myself doing a version of that. Funnily enough, Laura was the person filming. (laughs) (laughs) We're all in so many things with each other. We truly are. It's actually outrageous. Yeah. (laughs) So many. (laughs) Laura's filmed more than one of my works before. (laughs) That's why I wanted to get you together. Yeah. It's perfect combination. Yeah. And that was the reference for the work was thinking about the word that was used in German for this practice was abhärtung. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly either, but that translates to hardening and hardening in the sense that you are hardening your body to outside elements, this kind of thing. And I also thought that was a really great metaphor for being queer and having to harden yourself against the world in some ways in a really cheesy well i kind of i think the way the way you describe hardening is you know just hardening your body through this process of air bathing kind of feels nice to me lesser callous thing but more like you're working to build yourself up am i being vague there no that's kind of what was what was happening i mean there was a huge cathartic element to the work if that's what you're referencing um well yeah because there's because it's interesting you do, you do cast yourself as the lead figure taking the footsteps of this of this historical figure and retracing them i guess you do that in your research and then in the video practice you literally put yourself there i did have a question about how does this this research practice lead into a visual for you because i know like for me as a painter I've referenced historical representations of gay sexuality. And so I'm translating image to image. I'm using visual to visual and looking at what those impacts are. What's it for you? How do you get a visual out of what you research? There's a lot of visuals within the research. There were a lot of images that I came across. And that's a big part of it. It's like looking to the, like I was looking into the historical practices of hardening there was a very specific type of clothing that was to be worn, which was loose, flowing, linen, cotton, things like that. And I guess that is part of it. So I'm also looking for images, like I had images of Hjalma to use as reference from like when they were arrested. And there's, there's only a few that kind of exist, but that was sort of what I was going with. And then images from the internment camp when it existed and all these kind of things. And like I was saying before, I sort of like have them all all around me when I'm working. I'm looking at all this stuff. And then, I don't know, part of it also just comes from, I guess there's a big, like you kind of said before, there's an element to the work where I'm putting myself in a particular place or position or I'm doing a movement or like something. And that sometimes comes quite instinctually as well. It's just like, Sometimes I feel, like, compelled to do certain things, even if it doesn't make a whole heap of sense at the time, (laughs) necessarily, which I feel like is what happened with that work. I was like, I want to try air bathing and go to this place, this specific place with this history, and just see what happens and see what it feels like and see what visuals come out of that Mm -hmm. being there. There's a lot left up to chance rather than... I don't know, having something super planned out. I can, yeah. I can have an idea of how something's going to look, but ultimately I'm like still wanting to be quite flexible. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's quite spiritual, eh? Yeah. That's what I didn't want to say. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it, it is there. Yeah. That's how, that's how I feel when I see your work anyway. I think it's so beautiful that you sometimes do these soft actions as well. Mm. Or like the harsh ones of you like crawling over a rock or running around screaming. But <laughs> it's like you're calling back to this history in such a beautiful way. Yeah. I do feel like I'm trying to do that. Yeah. 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 Well, it's that, it's that sort of like seeking out of lineage as a queer person mm. when, you know, queerness isn't isn't something that we inherit through traditional like bloodlines or familial lines necessarily. The consequence of that is <laughs> constantly looking for lineage and validation and that comes through like histories and representations and even just like how we're perceived in the media or like the TV shows that we grew up with, what do queer people look like there has like such a huge impact on, on the queer youths, on the queer babies. Yeah, hugely. And even people who are coming to their, like coming out at whatever stage of their life, it's like you, everyone has that representation around them all the time, you know, or lack of, or yeah, which is a really interesting part of the research because a lot, I guess a lot of the other part that I do is reading between the lines. Nothing's ever explicitly stated. The queerness of this person, Hyoma, is never explicitly stated, but it's heavily implied through the evidence that they gathered for arrest and a lot of the comments made and transcripts and things like this. So that's also really interesting to me is that you, you're never going to get anything named. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is also kind of like... A big part of how I work is like I try not to name people's experiences. Well, interesting. I was, I was going to ask about um, your use of language, which I know is a sort of interest for you. And just kind of going off what you just said, your work, An Affinity of Hammers, which was at Hobianali, which was where it was first made for, wasn't it? The work that had the text is quite blunt. It names the thing and says the thing with sort of like no uncertainty really. But interesting with with the use of this text that is this kind of like misspelling or text as a visual thing is complicated or not obscured but diffused or something when your voice is saying trans women are women and a whole bunch of these statements. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that was a really, obviously, like, a huge 180 to the way that I'm used to working. So that work is called Speaking Without Words, that particular video work, which was part of the larger and affinity of Hammers. I mean, I still think of it as one body of of work. An affinity of Hammers is sort of like the umbrella title. With that work in particular, I was already working with the synthesized like British woman voice and I was working with the script of some kind of voiceover that I knew wanted to happen I didn't know if it was going to be a video or just audio and I kind of came to that place of that work speaking without words like a lot later on and making the overall overall videos for the installation and I did want it to be explicit because I thought it was important to be explicit. But at the same time, 
I kind of wanted to make reference to how, I don't know, it's like very simplistic statements that are taken as factual, which they are, some of them. But within that work, I mixed in different references, like a lot of alt-right references or like alternative spellings of the word woman, for instance, like one with an X and one with a Y, which both have their own histories and connotations yeah connotations and very complicated ones at that i also mixed in some phrases like trans women are stunning and brave and stunning and brave is a reference to a south park episode which is used quite a lot by turfs and alt-right people specifically to refer to trans people so if you go on like this it's often left in just sort of a comment form. It'll just say, so stunning and brave, or stunning and or brave. So it's like a sort of shorthand to reference. To like, you're a special snowflake, basically, is the, oh, okay. is the implication. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. from the episode. Yeah, but I liked that it had this double meaning, double meaning, which was that if you take it literally, it's quite like a bold statement to make. And I, I liked that part of the work. And I kind of hoped, I don't know, thinking about, the power of that language and trying to reroute some of those structures that would seek to harm people Mm. and trying to do that in a way that was quite humorous as well, which I didn't really realize until I showed the work and people laughed. And at first I was like, should I be offended? And then I realized actually that's probably part of what is meant to happen is like people are supposed to laugh because that kind of diffuses some of the, more harmful elements but at the same time there's elements of it that are incredibly serious and people there's sort of a I sometimes I have noticed like when I watched people that are watching it there's like a tension between wanting to laugh and wanting to take it really seriously and yeah not really knowing how to settle or like the discomfort of laughing at one thing and then realizing straight after that like the tone has just shifted mm-hmm. and like being shocked at the transition between like one tone to the next mm. The difficulty, I guess, of holding sort of those two responses at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so like being like laughing at something and then being horrified. So I, I know that, that that work is sort of specifically a, about the danger of TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. And at the time you were referencing um, the, what act was it? The birth, deaths and marriages reform. Yeah, which was happening, um, there were referendums happening both um, here in Aotearoa and also in Hobart, is that right? There had just been a referendum in Hobart, or recently enough that it was on the mind. And they had their own issues there with a group that was quite similar to the one that we have here. And their act, which was, was quite different to ours, but fundamentally that the self-declaration of gender was part of it mm. that actually passed despite the protests of these anti-trans groups so it was like interesting to have that connection especially making that work did i answer your question yeah yeah if you are not shouting to be heard you are heard to be shouting <laughs> is that right is that the wrong way around if you yeah if you have to shout to be heard you are heard as shouting that's the line from the work there mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a that's that, a like, quote from rattles s- around in my head. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people after seeing that work had a lot to say, but mm. I remember that specific line that I just butchered. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting with people for quite a long time. 
I can't take credit for that. That is pulled from Sarah Ahmed. Initially, I didn't want to include it because I didn't want to include reference to another a person who I like really admire and respect. But I was like, I, I don't know, just had this weird thing about it where I was like, I can't include a writer's piece of writing in the video. But I did. I couldn't get it out of my head. I could not include it in the end because I just felt like it was so necessary as a counterpoint to the rest because it's one of the only parts in the um, video as well where there's no text. So it's just the voice saying that. Wait, can you say it again? If you have to shout to be heard, you are heard as shouting. If you have to be, if you have to shout to be heard, you are not heard. I do want to note that um, Simon Gennard had a really beautiful essay accompanying that showing as well, which was cool. And speaking of which, both of you have travelled work before, and I think sort of video does lend itself to being able to be reshown in like a pretty like easy way low cost send it to somewhere else blah 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 um we just mentioned uh the warm illumination of horizon showed at blue oyster and then came to playstation and speaking without words was also shown at gus fisher as part of queer algorithms was it just that video or was it it was just that video, but then I also included some of the stickers that stickers. I had made, yeah, for the Hobart show. But they were, whereas in the Hobart show, they were sort of, um, sorry, at Hobie and Ali, they were a little bit less visible because they were in a very well-lit gallery at Gus Fisher. That was kind of the first time that I feel like people had really seen them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was going to ask. I'm interested in hearing your experiences of how the how, how context how how traveling works, how shifting the context shifts the shifts how you view your own work or shifts the meaning in your work. Everything from logistical differences, like seeing your sticker in a brightly lit gallery for the first time when that wasn't originally how it was shown. Like architecture obviously has an impact, but also seeing cultural context shift. What's it been like being able to see the work exist in different settings? That's a really hard question to answer. Well, I'll tell a little story. Oh, please do. <laughs> For the Te Uru show, the work that we, me and Ali developed, Party Friends, um, it was quite strange because we did the whole install of FaceTime <laughs> oh, yeah. with Chloe. We like, did. we haven't seen the work. We haven't oh, been true. to the gallery. Yeah. We, we hope had, that we can. We hope that we can. <laughs> we hope that we can. Yeah, I guess that was kind of cool for that project as well because it had all been done online and then we were even installing by doing it online. Cool. And, like a virtual um, forklift. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the forklift was people. Yeah. <laughs> More like somebody holding a phone and then Chloe like pushing a TV around and being like, is it good? Yeah. <laughs> that was like a fun experience of working with video. Yeah, that was really like I never would never have thought that an install would happen that way, I guess, especially because we weren't being, like, represented by a gallery or anything. Like, we were just ourselves. Mm. And we didn't really have, like, any specific conditions for how the work was presented or anything like that. So it was just strange. I've never not... haven't really not been at an install before. Mm. Um, Yeah. Me too. And usually with video, it's so painful until the bitter end. Yes. Usually you're exporting and crying and it doesn't go on the USB and then it doesn't go on the projector and then it's all like 
all the tech is wrong because like a lot of the times we're showing Aries that you know like don't have stuff yeah they don't resources. have yeah they don't have the proper stuff or the proper resources or the pop, proper kind of like high tech knowledge so yeah it was pretty lux as well yeah truly. having somebody like a team do that for us from, from afar shall we campaign for um all Aries to have an exhibitions tech team yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's set a petition <laughs> Are you listening, CNZ? <clears throat> well, I think we're nearing the end. I was going to ask, but I think we may have already answered this. Thinking of ourselves in a lineage of queer histories, mm. what's your relationship to a lineage of queer artists and queer practitioners? Maybe in particular in terms of queer video artists, both locally and internationally. I remember, Alia, um, your work in The Tomorrow People which was called Eli Jenkins' Prayer. And I mentioned it reminded me of um, Vaginal Davis, um, which was a specific reference you were... It was an intentional reference on your part. I guess what I'm trying to get at is something... There's something, there's something with like the international and the local in terms of being a, being a queer artist where we are in Aotearoa. What's your relationship like with that? So my relationship to like lineage of queer moving image practice is so little (laughs) i feel like maybe i'm have a blind spot and have a lot of ignorance to like a whole history that i somehow have not had revealed to me but there isn't much around and luckily in the community that we're in right now there are more queer video artists dealing with queer stuff than anywhere I know how to find (laughs) you know so we've got like Alia (laughs) 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 me (laughs) Chris no I'm not going to name people because that's weird but yeah I feel like we're lucky that we come from a like a local community that has multiple practitioners working with that I feel like when I look to our kind of like queer art historical lineage I'm more looking at history rather than art history I'm more looking at people doing stuff over people making actual art or like actual contemporary art yeah well if I think about it like sort of you know think of your research practice and you know coming across people by accident or the amount of sort of work that you have to go to research something that's happened locally like how difficult it is to then sort of like see what's happening globally in all these little pockets of queer history which must be buried in so many different places. Are you optimistic about the future of queer video art in Aotearoa? Hell yeah. Hell yeah! There's so many great people making so much great art at the moment. Cool. Um, And this will be my final question. Leading on from that... What would be your dream collaboration? Doesn't have to be with an artist. Um, I've already got mine. Can be with a company, like go full corporate. Nah, lost mine then. (laughs) (laughs) Like (laughs) Nike or, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah, dream collaboration. Shoot, go. Oh my God. Remember what I said about capitalism sucks? (laughs) Yeah. Well, my initial one straight away was me, Ali, and Ryan Tricardin. 
We could yeah. be like, this could turn into one of those investigative podcasts where we ring people up oh and God. try and get them on the podcast. But then it's a whole series of us trying to get in touch with Ryan Trey Carton. Amazing. Perfect. Sorted. I, at the moment, I really like, would love to do a collab with like Candice Lynn on anything. I think she's so cool. She's an artist. I'll look her up. I'll look her yeah. up. We'll put that in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Candice Lynn. Oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. Candice Lynn. <laughs> I love Candice Lynn. Um, cool. Well, with that. Or, like, the other collaboration that would be amazing is my favorite artist in the whole world, James Charles. I don't know who that is either. Is really? that the makeup artist? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, on that note, um, thank you both so much for coming. You've been listening to Popular Glory with myself, Robbie Hancock, and our guests, Laura Duffy and Alia Winter. Thanks to Creative New Zealand for their support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>